Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Michael Lewis, the journalist and best-selling author of non-fiction hits that have also gone on to become Hollywood box office favourites, such as Moneyball and The Big Short, joins us to discuss his latest, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. Lewis's latest book tells the story of crypto entrepreneur Sam Bankman-Fried, who's currently on trial for a litany of financial offences following the collapse of his multi-billion dollar crypto outfit, FTX. Lewis had a front row seat to all of the action, having trailed Bankman-Fried for many of the months leading up to his arrest in late 2022. He's in conversation in this episode with journalist, presenter and broadcaster Riddle Shah, and this was a live event which took place just a few weeks ago at London's Union Chapel. Today's episode is the first of three parts, and if you can't wait for the second half, just become a member of Intelligence Squared at intelligencesquared.com membership, or hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts to get access to parts one, two, and the exclusive members-only part three as well. Now let's join Riddle Shah with more. Hello, everyone. Tinker, tailor, soldier, sailor, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief. I was thinking about that nursery rhyme today as I tried to weigh up my opinion of Sam Bankman-Fried, the man who became a crypto billionaire before his 30th birthday, vowed to give it all away, and is now standing trial for fraud and conspiracy in a Manhattan court. Original or reckless, brilliant, or just a charlatan, it's possible to attach any number of conflicting adjectives to Bankman-Fried's and his extraordinary story and his meteoric rise and failure. Luckily for us, we have an author on stage who's written a huge number of bestsellers on some of the biggest stories of our time and has watched the story of Sam Bankman-Fried unfold from the inside. Michael Lewis's books include Flash Boys, Liars Poker, The Big Short and Moneyball, both made into successful movies. And his new book is Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. It is his compelling take on the story of Sam Bankman-Fried. Now, before we begin, a quick explanation for all of you. We're going to have a chat first on the stage, Michael and I. There will be time for all of you to ask questions. There'll be a roving mic down here. I'll ask you to stand up and ask your question. There are two fixed mics up there on either side in the hall. If you're watching online, then please submit your questions in the box and we'd love to hear from you. And I will make sure there's lots of time for questions at the end. So let's begin. Michael Lewis, welcome, first of all. I want to begin really simply by asking how you came to meet Sam Bankman-Fried. How did you get involved in all of this? So a lot of my books start accidentally and this was no exception. Uh, September of 2021, I had a call from um, a friend and former book subject, the main character of Flash Boys. Uh, asking me if I would meet with this person who he was about to do a business deal with. The person was Sam Bankman-Fried. I'd never heard of him. He said he was about to swap shares in his company for shares in, in Sam Bankman-Fried's company, FTX, which I'd never heard of. And he said, um, it's, an, it's such an odd situation for me because it's a big deal. The, this company, FTX, is the fastest growing financial business I've ever seen. Um, Everybody in our inner circle is sort of on board, but it's, getting, it's very hard for us to get a read on who he is. Um, I, he says, I, I met with him. I don't have a good feel. Nobody, he's, he was the richest person in the world under 30 mm-hmm. at that point. And he said, I called all over Wall Street and nobody knows who he is. So I said, sure. And Sam Bankman-Fried happened to have grown up in the Bay Area where I live, and he was visiting his parents, and he came over to see me. Um, that been maybe a month later. 
and he tumbles out of an Uber. He looks like he tumbled out of a dumpster. He, he's wearing his shorts and his T-shirt. And, his, and uh, he's always dressed for a hike, but I think I was the first one I ever took him on one. And, and <laughs> so we went on the walk in the Berkeley Hills. And uh, after about an hour, um, I had ceased to really think very much about my friend's interest and, and started to think about my own because he was, the things that were coming out of his mouth, both how fast he had made it how the world had responded. I mean, he was at that point, he was saying $22.5 billion. How the world was configuring itself around his money. What he intended to do with the money. Um, at the end of the walk, I just said, I, I don't know where this is all going to end up, but could I just watch? And so you were impressed. I was. So I, I mean, there's a backstory to this. I had decided some years ago. And the last book I wrote, The Premonition, was the resu one result of this, that I was going to start books with a character, that, I, that the character in a situation, that I was going to cease to, I was going to let the story take care of itself. So what I thought after two hours with him is I thought I have a, this is a character. I don't know where it goes or what it is, but it's just, it was so odd. It was peculiar. And um, the first thing I said, you know, was months before I called up a, a publisher and said, maybe I've got a book here. I, I, and, and what I said to them, I can remember what I said. I don't know, I still didn't know what the story was, but it was, there's a Sam Bankman Freed shaped hole in the world now that I did not know exist. I want to, I want to use him to describe that hole. And, and so I thought he could take me places. And in particular, so from that walk, the places I thought he could take me, I was really interested that he was a spawn of Wall Street, that he was, he, especially very modern Wall Street, high frequency trading, had given him his identity. I thought it's a way into that story. Like what is going on in markets there? He could take me there. He could take me into American politics because he was, he was, gonna, he, he was threatening to spend a billion dollars in the next presidential election. And he was already, had already become Bi Biden's second biggest donor uh, and was meddling in all kinds of interesting ways in congressional races. I thought he could take me into crypto. I was, crypto was on a list of things I was interested in. I had not been that interested in it as, People, crypto people had called me over the years, write about us, write about us, because they were always promoting themselves. He, he was interesting, because he was the first crypto pers person in crypto I had met who didn't, who didn't care all that much about crypto. Right. He was agnostic. Mostly they're religionists. He had the view that this could all be BS. It could all fall apart. Uh, so I was thinking like where he takes me. Uh, and now he's taken, he ended up taking me a lot, many further places than I imagined <laughs> he was going to take me. And that journey may still be continuing, but let's pick up on a couple of things you mentioned there. So his background, his parents are academics. You talked about the fact that he was giving money away. So it was at university that he became interested in this thing called effective altruism. Just tell us a little bit about this. It, it's a proper kind of ideology that he got. You people are responsible for this. It comes <laughs> out of Oxford, right? It's, it, it's uh, I mean, as I understood it. So he, he, yes, he had in university without, he was kind of had no particular direction in life. He, he was a son, child of two Stanford law professors and had kind of always assumed he would be a professor of some sort. Given his abilities, he would have been maybe a physics or a math teacher, but, but, uh, but actually wasn't all that interested in it. Two things happened to him in university that give him direction. One is he collides with these high-frequency traders who discover a curious aptitude in him, and we can talk about what that mm. is, because it is a curious aptitude. But he also, he also collides with effective altruism, which is young then. It's 2012, 
Um, and the, it, it grow, this is a movement that grows out of utilitarianism. It, the, 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 the greatest good for the greatest number. But it, it's, and there's a philosopher at Oxford named Toby Ward who gets the movement going by making the point that at very little inconvenience to himself, if he directs the money he gives away really smartly, effectively, that he can do enormous good. And he writes a paper where he shows that if he gives away half his salary over his lifetime, he will spare 80,000 African children of blindness. And um, the movement uh, actually kind of actively starts to recruit. And it finds, it's, it finds the people most interested in the movement in kind of math and physics programs, mainly at American universities, at elite American universities. And one of the movement's founders, a fellow named Will McGaskill, well-known, mm. uh, gives a talk in Cambridge that Sam hears. And the talk, the important parts of the talk are, at that point, Sam knew about effective altruism and was interested in its ideas. But effective altruism had spawned another idea, and it was, it was earned to give. And this is what Sam hears Will McGaskill basically talk about. And it's, it's as you, 20-year-old college student who doesn't know what you want to do with your life, think about what you want to do with your life. Um, consider, the, cons, cons, consider this choice. Let's make this choice explicit. Uh, you could go become a doctor and go work in Africa and save so many lives. Uh, or if you have this aptitude that Wall Street craves, you could go to Wall Street and you could make money enough to send 20 doctors to Africa and save 20 times as many, as many lives. Now what's happening here is your life choices are being turned into a math problem. And Sam responded powerfully to this. And it was this earn to give idea. Okay, I'm going to go figure out how to make as much money as possible. And especially, essentially divorce, it's not going to be a matter of the heart. I'm not doing this because I'm feeling a certain, that, I, that this is my way of having the most impact on the world. And this is the beginning of, the, of Sam Bankman-Fried as a, as a character in the world. That, that he at this virtually the same time without having, it, I mean, this is not a person who is a money person. He does not grow up with like, and never really becomes someone who has much interest in, in material things. Um, and his parents don't either, kind of lives in his head. Uh, that, that the idea that it bewildered the parents that all of a sudden the child is being recruited by Wall Street firms and that there's this thing he can do and they've discovered he can do and it, and it pays not just a few million dollars, it might pay many, 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 many millions of dollars. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. 
Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. So we'll, we'll come back to the money aspect a bit later, but just talk about that aptitude. So what is it about Sam Bankman-Fried that made him so good at high-frequency trading when he joined a Wall Street firm? So when I went through Wall Street uh, interviews back in the 1980s, they were, they, were, they were their own strange event, mainly designed to sort of test your nerve. Mm. I mean, they do just weird things like... Uh, um, the, Generally, what they were trying to do is make you as uncomfortable as possible and see how you responded. And um, the, the, the interviews that identify Sam Bankman-Fried as possibly very gifted uh, in a way that the high-frequency traders care about. And these are the firms, by the way, these firms, I mean, unless you're in Wall Street or in finance, you may never have heard of these places. Well, Jane Street. Jane Street, I'd never Jump heard of Trading, until... Tower Research, mm. um, uh, Susquehanna Capital, mm. uh, Citadel, Virtu. These are the names of the places. And this is, uh, in a, this is a phenomenon of the last 15 years. They, have, it, they are taking the interesting risks in the markets now. It's no longer Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley that are doing this. It's these firms, are, they are the ones who are establishing market prices. And, uh, and in these places, Sums of money are being made that dwarf the sums of money that were made in their predecessors. I mean, it used to be a big deal to make a million dollars in a firm. There are people in these firms who make billions of dollars. Um, so Sam, and the tests they put you through and the kind of people they're looking for are a little different. Social skills, not important, not at all important. It's, it's, what's important is it's a mathiness, but it's not just a mathiness. It's a mathiness combined with an ability to deal with messiness. So it's, it's Sam Bankman-Fried, good at chess, good at math camp, but not the very best. Not going to be a famous mathematician, not going to be a chess champion. But if instead you change chess so that every move has to be done within 10 seconds and every two minutes uh, some voice shouts a rule change, so queens become pawns or pawns can fly, or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Creating a kind of semi-chaotic environment, that's the environment that at least the, the, the people who are recruiting for these firms think you need to be good at in order to, to thrive. Um, so and he also appears to be willing to take risks. Where other people might hesitate, he jumps in. Correct. But you, you have to be able to make decisions where other people might be paralyzed. And, and he would say, and I think this is true, that the kind of problems they give you tend to, tend to cause people just to not, not make decisions. And they're looking for people who will make decisions and make them fairly quickly. Uh, and so the, uh, his willingness to make the decisions was an, was an asset in this process. Um, I mean, we could run, we don't want to run through any of these tests. They're incredibly, <laughs> they're incredibly arcane what they do to these people. And you look and you say, like, how, could it, how do you even think about that problem? Mm. If, I, mean, one, I mean, for example, to, to reduce to a quantitative matter, uh, what's the likelihood that I have a relative who played professional baseball? And to think through that problem in a really sophisticated way and do it quickly. It's one of the tests they put him through. And so and another way of thinking about what they do is um, learning how to quantify things that you might think are uh, of as qualitative matters or qualitative decisions. He had the ability to do that. He, he off the charts ability. Like the, when, he, when he went through the, the, these 
um, interviews. They would, one of the firms stopped the interviews halfway through the interviews and said, we don't need to do any more. You just outscored anybody this year. And his problem, however, is that these tests and the problem these firms have, I think, is these tests do not filter for any kind of social ability. Uh, and this is a person who, to describe, to describe him as isolated doesn't fully capture the, the, the nature of the person. Um, this is a person who, in a, from a very early age, so when I ask him, I mean, which you, I would do, would, would do with any subject, give me a list of people uh, from the, who knew you before the age of 18, so I can just get a sense of what your childhood was like. He couldn't name a person. Mm. He, his parents, his brother was off the list because his brother, he didn't have anything to do with his brother. And that I had to kind of dig and dig and dig to find people who had interaction with him before the age of 18. He felt, he felt um, uh, first, no real feeling for people. Like in the presence of people, he didn't feel love. He didn't feel, he said, I didn't feel pride. I didn't feel any of the things people normally feel. He said, the thing I most weirdly couldn't do is I couldn't make facial expressions. So when people were interacting with me, I wasn't giving, they, they didn't know how to respond to me. So they just thought I was this weird thing. So we, he, I don't, go ahead, you can interrupt I was going to say, he does at one time though, talks about, talk about being depressed. And I wonder if that re reflects the fact that he does feel emotion, but just perhaps not in the way that you or I might. I'm sure he feels something. He thinks, but he, his self-identity was, I don't understand other, I don't understand these feelings. I don't, I don't have these feelings. And he, um, and he was ostracized all the way through childhood, less so at MIT, because MIT tends to collect these people who are ostracized by everybody else when they're in high school. But he was- <laughs> Some uh, recognition there so, in the audience. So, I mean, but he, you know, he was the kind of person who even the nerds rejected because he was such a nerd, right? There was no spot for this in, in, even, in, in, even in a private Silicon Valley high school where his classmate is Steve Jobs' son, that you would think that would, there'd be plenty of people who he could not relate to, who could not relate to him and they would bond over that. But, I, I, but, but it, that's I not what happened. I wonder though if it develops later on, just jumping forward for a moment, into a kind of arrogance, because he tells you at one point that he doesn't struggle to read other problem, other people. His problem is that people can't read him. And I, there's a little bit of me that thinks, hmm, come on, come on. He was pretty good at reading other people. I, would, I, you know, I think he was surprised. This is, the, this is the part that doesn't fit the overall picture, that, that his astuteness about other people. Um, not always, but better than you would have imagined given how, and the point about other people reading him is if he's not giving anything, yeah. it's hard, right? Yeah. He, when he is in college, when he starts to develop ambition to go to work on Wall Street and he realizes that this, there's been no social filter, but eventually there's going to be problems because he can't do the social thing, he gets a mirror and he starts practicing like how to smile and he's resentful about it. Why do I need to grin when you say something that's amusing? Isn't it enough that I just listen? But he forces himself to learn these things. Um, so you say arrogance. I agree. It's, and it's the arrogance of a boy who sits in a room thinking about the world and watching the world for 18 years and trying to position his, himself in a way that is not completely defeating um, in relation to that world. And he had a hollow sense of his own superiority without anything really up to the point he hits Wall Street with any kind of evidence to suggest he is superior in any way. He was, he was never thought extremely special mm. until he hits Wall Street. So he's successful at Jane Street, uh, successful trader, but then sees a gap in the market and decides to leave and create his own 
firm, Alameda Research. Can we do one thing before we move yes, on from Wall on. Street? I don't want to interrupt your interview. No, no, it's fine. But this is something, no, this never will get mentioned in the, in the, in the process. What they did in this firm is two chapters of the book are just about this. And it's riveting what's going on in this place. And I'm going to give one example. Sam Bankman-Fried and his, a few colleagues, before the presidential election of 2016. It's a great example. It's crazy stuff, right? Mm. But this will give you, a, whet your appetite. Mm. Although you're all getting the book anyway, so I don't really need to do that. But, it, but, but the, so before the Clinton-Trump campaign, or race, or during the race, before the election, um, they all, everybody notices, like everybody in the financial markets notices, that whenever there's good news for Trump, the stock markets collapse. And whenever there's good news for Clinton, the stock markets go up. And they think to themselves, we wonder if we can get information, real-time information on election night before anybody else in the world and trade on it because it's obviously going to move markets around. And this is audacious. This is what these, this is, if you ask what Sam Bankman-Fried and these firms are doing, what they're generally, they are, they're, they're looking for, they're looking to, to get information no one else has before anybody has it and put it in the markets, but on the level of the second or the millisecond. Mm. And so they build, an, they, they build a data collection uh, um, machine where traders are assigned to states in the United States to find better, faster ways to get the information from the polls. And you would think, well, how could, that, how could they do that? But the way up to that point, Americans are getting the results of their electioners on the ca is on cable news, and the cable it goes to commercials. The guy has to walk across a set to his map. There, there are all these human things that are slowing down the information arriving in the minds of Wall Street people, and they indeed build this thing that enables them to have sometimes minutes, sometimes hours advantages on the market about what's happening in this election. And it's Sam is right in the middle of this. This is a sort of thing that completely captivates him. Um, they make a bet. The bet is that, if, as they see that Trump is going to win, that U.S. stock markets are going to collapse. They bet the foreign stock markets are going to collapse too, but they make their big bet in the U.S. stock markets. That's what they do in the first four or five hours. After five hours after the election, they have the most profitable trade in the history of Jane Street. They've made several hundred million dollars in a matter of hours. Sam goes to bed for a few hours and comes back, and it's the worst trade in the history of Jane Street because markets have rallied. The U.S. markets have rallied on the news of Trump, and they've lost all this money. This is, this is this, it's, what happens next tells you something about Sam Bankman-Fried. He's lost. He's just orchestrated the worst trade in the history of this firm. The firm, the way they think about things, they don't blame him. The process was fine. Everybody approved of it. They don't look to scapegoat him. They just say, like, we won't do this again. Mm. One of the reasons Sam Bankman-Fried leaves Jane Street is he's upset they won't do this again. He says, the problem wasn't that we shouldn't have done this. It's just we should have thought about it a little better, how we traded it. We should keep doing this. And he found their lack of ambition frustrating. So that's, it's an amazing thing. So then he finds crypto. Okay, You're so Alameda right. Research, and I'm going to spool forward a little bit. Right. He gets funding from Effective Altruists, uh, partly to help Alameda Research do its work. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Um, he, but there is, at some point, a schism, right? Well, this is a foreshadowing of what, what is going to happen. Uh, $4 billion goes missing, and a whole bunch of people... No, $4 million. $4 million. But okay, $4, million $4 million in a pile. $4 million, I apologize. $4 million goes missing. Uh, and a bunch of people choose to leave. Should alarm bells have rung in many people's minds at that moment about yeah, so they, Sam Bankman-Fried? And they did. So what happens is 
he's going to do, he's going to be the first high frequency trader into crypto, basically is the, is the idea. Um, he moves to California at the end of 2017 and for, for various reasons, only recruits other effective altruists to work in this hedge fund. None of our very, only a couple of whom had any real financial experience. Mm. So there are 20 or so of them. And within months, the firm is, is in a civil war because half the firm thinks Sam is either a crook or so catastrophically sloppy that he might as well be a crook. And they're missing, they're, they're, they're missing money. Like, literally don't know where it is. And money that has come to them from effective altruists. So they're thinking, this money could have gone to save lives in Africa. Instead, it's, it's gone to fuel Sam Bankman-Fried's mad trading. And now we don't know where it is. And Sam doesn't want, care to go find it. He wants to just keep trading because he thinks he'll turn up anyway. So it did set off alarm bells uh, in, the, in the effective altruist community, because they were the only ones privy to what was going on. Half the people quit the firm, including the entire management committee apart from Sam. And, um, and they find the money. So that, so then it gets very complicated because they've accused him of stealing the money, they've accused him of losing the money, and that, uh-oh, actually the money's there. And actually these things he wants to do make sense, and, it, and he starts to make a lot of money. And I caught the effective altruists who had left and had accused him of wrongdoing in the moment uh, when things were going great for Sam Bankman-Fried, and all but one of them were sheepish and apologetic, like we should never have left, we should have trusted him. Uh, but they, they, they were all having second thoughts about the schism. But the schism actually is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen because the carelessness was breathtaking. And the, the willingness to take risk was breathtaking. And also the willingness to do things without consulting anybody. Like they got to a point in this firm where it was so scary that mo all this money was missing. They made his fellow managers would make Sam promise you can't hit the button and send your bots out there to make 250,000 trades a day unless we're here with you to watch. And he goes, yeah, okay. And then they go home for the night, he hits the button and falls asleep. And, and it, that, that was a kind of common occurrence. So it was a obvious recklessness that, um, that gets buried. It gets buried. It, 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 all the people who were suspicious of him, but one, there was an exception in the management ranks um, and end up like rethinking their suspicions and thinking, no, no, he was actually very special and we should have appreciated how special he was. And the people that remained to some extent are true believers, two of them. Well, this shapes the firm, right. So you've got two of them who are in court uh, this week, Gary Wang, the coder, and Caroline Ellison. I mean, two of the characters that appear in the book that are still part of the story. How much do you think Sam Bankman-Fried was able to, to behave in the way that he did to go on to create um, FTX, which appeared to be a company without any controls, without any of the, the normal structures you'd expect in a company of that size. Can we talk a little bit about that? About, yeah. the about just how peculiar I this just, was? I mean, it's extraordinary. Yes, please do. Let me, let me give one example, and then I'll, as to illustrate the, just the general chaos. So does anybody have the book on them right now? If, if, if you open the book, and um, will you, if you, could you hand us the cover, just the jacket cover, and can, do you mind if I? No, not okay, at all. Okay, so, so let me do, I can get up and do this. I mean, I'd probably, the, the, this is, 
breaking protocol with the Intelligence Squared, stand, actually standing up. So, but I'm going to show you. Oh, that. I want to show you something because this this really does kind of dramatize it. So, when the whole thing falls apart, um, there. Uh, so, when Sam Bankman, he he refused to. He had a principled objection to job titles and organization charts, and even having a list of the employees who worked in the firm, or anybody knowing the list of employees who worked in the firm. And he thought the organization chart, people see where they are, and it, it distorts their behavior towards each other. He had a long, it's a, this is all in the story, he had a long explanation for why they wouldn't, he wouldn't do conventional organization. Of course, people need organization. And especially half his firm is Chinese, and they don't—they just go insane without an organization chart. Like it's the most important thing in a Chinese firm, and and so Sam and Sam would subcontract all the dealing with the other people's emotions and unhappiness to other people in the firm. One of the people to whom he subcontracts a large part of this mess is his own psychiatrist, who he has flown from San Francisco, who has gone from San Francisco where he was psychiatrist to effective altruist. That was his business, basically. And so he's got a wonderful view on the whole effective altruist thing. He comes to the Bahamas where he, within moments, has 100 FTX employees on his couch coming through to talk about their personal problems. And the personal problems, are because all they do is work, are all job problems. And the job problems are mostly like, I don't know where I am in this organization. I hate my boss, but I don't know who my boss is. It's, it's that kind of stuff. And so the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist, in order to treat these people, starts to, in therapy, ask them, Who's above them? Who's below them? Who do they report to? Who do they talk to? And he creates an organization chart, but tells zero people except me. He doesn't, Sam Beckman Free is in jail, so he does not know this exists. He'd be outraged to know this exists. But the prosecutors don't know this exists. The bankruptcy people have said over and over, we don't know who we even work for this firm. Well, here they are, every single name, every single name, and it's beautifully done. Like, like, <laughs> uh, so, I don't need to screw up your book cover. We'll get it back, but we'll, we'll sign your book twice. But the, but you look at it and it's like, it's like one of those uh, family trees in a Tolstoy novel. That, that you, yes, this, will, just like this that. will help you understand everything you read. And there are things on it that are just beautiful. I mean, you, someone who's actually a business consultant would take this and say, wait, 24 people are reporting to Sam? How does that work? And, none of, and he won't talk to any of them. But, but, but Gary Wang, who doesn't speak, except when he's on a witness stand. Gary Wang, who is, the, who is the CTO, who cooks up this business with Sam, who is meant to chief technology officer in a basically technology firm. He has no one underneath him. And that's because, that's because the therapist, the therapist didn't know business, but he knew that Gary didn't talk to anybody, so there must be no one underneath him. Anyway, anyway here we here, we'll get, we'll get you. Let's give this back to you now. There we go. But that's an example, just a little example of how this place functioned, and it was so wonderful for a writer's point of view. I wouldn't invest in it, but from a writer's point of view, it was just delightful because you'd never seen anything like it. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget there's more of that discussion to dig into for Intelligence Squared members. Part two and three are ready for them right now. You can become a member by hitting the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts or signing up on the Intelligence Squared website. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared.
the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.